I was thinking this week about, uh, can we turn the clock on back there, please? Um, thinking this week about how um, we use certain of our senses to communicate understanding to others. If somebody is talking to us and we want to let them know that we understand where they're coming, they're coming from, there are certain words of sensation that we don't use. If Cindy is sharing her heart with me, I can't ever remember saying to her, I smell you. That'd be a little weird. If she were sharing with me or a friend were sharing with me, I I don't ever remember saying, I I taste you. We'd be going, that's really weird. Sometimes we might say, you know, we might say, I, I feel your pain. Remember that back in the 90s or... Or, you know, I, I touch where you're at. But that's more empathy. When we want to tell somebody that we comprehend them, there's two sensations that we use to describe that sense of comprehension. When somebody is sharing with me back in the 60s, we used to say this, I hear you. I hear you. And it meant more than just the sound waves were going through the air and striking my eardrum and vibrating and my brain was interpreting them in certain ways. It meant that I have a comprehension of what is going on. I understand what is going on. I am making a connection with you on what is going on. And so I hear you. The other sensation that we use, the other sense that we use is we talk about, I see you. I see where you're coming from. I can see that. But what I find so interesting is that when you read the scriptures and you're reading material that was written 3,000 some years, 4,000 some years ago, those same expressions are important to those writers, to the characters, to the people involved in the in the stories that God is is giving to us as he tells us about the lives of these individuals. And as we come to Genesis chapter 16, and beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter, those two senses, those two ideas are important throughout. It is a theme that runs through this entire, what is it, nine verses, seven verses, eight verses, whatever it is. And that is that God sees El Roy is the name of God that speaks of that. And that God hears Ish Shema El. God sees and God hears. Now we have to be careful because sometimes when we think about God seeing, that can be a fearful judgmental thing. There's that fear that God sees, you know, all the bad that I'm doing and he's there to to get me and to stomp me out and to do all of that. But that is not the sense of the word in any way in these passages. It is not the sense of, I see what you're doing. Rather, it's the idea of, I hear you. I see what you're going through. 
I understand. As we come across a woman who is now an outcast on many, many different levels, we come to understand exactly what God's relationship is like with us and how he seeks to interact with us and how we then are to respond to that. Over the last several weeks, we've been dealing with the life of Abraham and the the idea behind all that Moses wrote in dealing with Abraham is this. How are you going to live in response to the promise? God has made a promise to Abraham. God has made a promise to us. God has promised us a relationship throughout all of eternity. He has promised us the forgiveness of sins. He has promised us intimacy with him because of our faith and trust in what Christ Jesus did. For Abraham, it was believing and trusting that God would give him the land and a child. For us, it's believing that the child was already given, who lived and died and was resurrected. And through his life, we have a relationship, an intimacy, a covenant with God. And here's the question. Are you going to live in a way that trusts that? Or are you going to live in a way that does not? Are you going to live by faith in God's promise and covenant or in faithlessness? And so we ride this incredible roller coaster with Abraham is first Abram, then Abraham, first Sarai, and then Sarah, as they are struggling with believing that God will accomplish and do what he says he's going to do. And so they have the promise given to them, and they leave the land that that they lived in and came to the promised land. But then there's a challenge to the promise, and there's famine in the land. So Abram takes it upon himself, not in trust and dependence upon God, and goes to Egypt and lies about Sarai and all the mess that takes place there. Then he comes back in the land and the land is invaded. And in faith, he chooses to believe God's promise that God will deliver the land into his hands. And so he acts in faith. And now we're back to faithlessness. As it's been 10 years and still no child. And so Abram and Sarai take it upon themselves and say, we will use Hagar to try to accomplish what we believe God would have us to do. As we began to look at this chapter, we said the overall theme is this. Faithful dependence in the midst of uncertainty leads to the enjoyment of God's promises. When we choose to respond by faith, we enjoy God much, much more. It's not that our relationship is dependent upon whether or not we are faithful or faithless. That relationship is sealed in Christ. But my enjoyment of it, the enrichment of it, the the sense of relationship with God and intimacy with him and communion with him will be determined on whether or not I respond in faith or faithlessness. Faithful dependence increases that joy. Now, as you come into this chapter, remember, we dealt with part one. That's the bad news. The bad news was this. For the people of promise, lack of trust leads to great struggles. One of my tasks is to do pastoral counseling with folks. And so many times, folks will come in, and I love it, and it's, 
It's wonderful when people come in in the midst of the struggle and we can talk about God's will and God's purpose. But sometimes people come in after they've chosen to respond in faithlessness and it's just gotten worse. So often you see how faithless responses make matters that much more difficult. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 16 in verses 1 through 6, where you have this fractured family that has just torn itself apart. But thankfully, there is a change. And beginning in verse 7, we have part 2. And the way this is written, it is written in two parts. It's written for us to come to the end of verse 6 and go, what a mess. And to ask the question, how is this going to be resolved? And then part 2 gives us the answer. And that is the choice to trust God leads inevitably to greater enjoyment of him. Now, I want you to notice what's not written there. The choice to trust God does not inevitably lead to easy circumstances, to the end of all struggles, to everything being resolved. That I can't promise. Maybe. But this I can promise that when we choose to trust in God's promises and his covenant, when we choose to trust in who he is and what he promises what he will do, there will be a greater enjoyment of him. And there's nothing more valuable than that. Now, as we come to this passage, the first thing that we come to understand is that God seeks us in the midst of our struggles. Beginning there in verse 7, it says, Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, servant Sarah, what the heck are you doing? It's my translation. And as you begin to read through that, there's a couple of things that strike us. The very first thing is that our God seeks us when we are struggling. He seeks us. He comes after us. He pursues us. He understands the struggle, and he is coming after us to try to find us. Now, not that we're lost, not that God goes, I can't imagine where he went. But in the sense that God will seek after his children. Jesus spoke about the the one lamb that is lost and leaving the 99 and going to seek that one. The prodigal son speaks of a father as his son is making his way back. Where is the father? The father is on the road already looking for the child. 
And in the passage, there's a couple of ways that we see this. First of all, we understand that what she is doing is she's going back home. She's left Sarai, she's left Abram. And as you read there again, our understanding of the geography isn't as clear as it would have been to these folks. So he says she's at a spring beside the road to Shur. What's the road to Shur? It's the way back to Egypt. She says, I'm going to flee my circumstances. I'm getting out of here. And as she's on that road, God knows where she's at. And the question to say to her, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Is not one that God didn't know, but rather to begin the conversation. But here's the most amazing thing. God declares his choice of her. Hagar, I choose you. And you say, where's that in the passage? Where's that in that verse? I don't see it. It's found in this one little word. He found her. It's not a lack of knowledge. In the Hebrew mindset, the idea of being found by God is the idea of being chosen by him. Remember the old Uncle Sam posters? I want you. Kind of that finger sticking out at you. What this declares is, and even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our failures, even in the times that we are faithless and fail to be faithful to God, God still says, I choose you. I chose you before the foundation of the world. I found you in Christ before you were even created in your mother's womb. I found you. I wanted you. But there's another thing that God does. And that is our God values us when we feel scorned. Have you ever felt worthless? Have you ever felt useless? Have you ever felt totally inadequate? If you haven't yet, it'll eventually come. You know, sometimes I feel that way as a pastor. Sometimes I feel that way as a a husband. Sometimes I feel that way as a father. I, I just feel, just feel so valueless. And what is so interesting is in the midst of this Woman struggle with her own sense of value, and we'll see it in just a moment. God comes and says, I value you. And the way he does it is astounding. The very first thing we see, notice there in verse 7, Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring which, by the road to Shur, and he said, to her, listen, Hagar. Why is that so amazing? Because up until this point in the entire chapter, Hagar is never dealt with as a person. She's dealt with as an object. Sarai treated her as an object to be taken and to be given and to be owned and to be used. Abram treated her as an object. 
She belongs to you. Do whatever you want. And all the way through, Hagar has been given. She's been taken. She's been owned. She's been used. Nobody acknowledges this woman. And then something phenomenal happens. God says, Hagar, what are you doing? Now let me show you the other amazing fact about this interaction. It is the only time in all of ancient literature, in all of it, where God or any God sought out a woman and called her by name. This was a patriarchal society. I don't agree with this. You don't agree with this. But the idea was that men were the important ones, women were not. And in the midst of a society that would put this woman down, that would use her, that would abuse her, that would own her, God recognizes her value. And he demonstrates it through simply calling her by her name, Hagar. Now, I know there's a lot written how the Bible doesn't value women and all this kind of stuff. It's just not true. This violated the entire culture of the ancient Near East. No one did this. But God did. God's word is so clear that God does know who we are. That God formed me. And that there is a name for his children that he will give to us in eternity that we do not yet know. But God cares about me. When you have a friend that rejects you, that misuses you, that mistreats you, to be able to say, God, this hurts, but thank you that I'm valued to you. When you lose the job or you fail the course or you, whatever it is, when you sit there in the midst of your thinking and you think back over all the things that I've done, the wrong and the struggles and the failures. And the voice inside wants to say, you are worthless. God calls you. Now, you've got to be careful. As he calls us by name. That's Santa Claus. You know, he knows each reindeer by name. But God does call his children. He knows us, and he values us. Hagar, I care. But the other thing about God coming here is that our Father reveals his character to allow us to trust him. You know, I've told the stories of the recovery after Hurricane Katrina and you know, being involved in that whole recovery ministry and all that was going on. And so many times when we thought we were at the end, when we saw no way out, when we saw no way 
to get through a particular situation when we believed that was going to be the end, suddenly God would drop upon us the right person at the right time with the right skills. And we saw it over and over and over again. And what was God saying? I will reveal my faithfulness to you so that you can learn to trust me. I can't tell you the number of people who I've talked to who have lost jobs and they weren't sure how they were going to pay their bills. And after a long period of time at the end, I would often hear, I don't know how we did it. I don't know how we made it. But God was faithful. People that have been through the struggles and the pain and the hurt and the loss and the grief. And when they come to the end, the response is, you know, I never want to go through that again. But God was with us. God was with me. And I am certain of it. That builds in us a strength. That builds in us a faith. And that's what he does here. He reveals to, to, to Hagar that he hears her. The name that she is to give to the, this young man, the angel of the Lord there in verse uh, 11, says to her, you are now with child. You will have a son and you shall name him Ishmael. If you know anything about, he, about the Jewish religion, there's something that they call the Shema. And it begins this way. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. And the reason they call it the Shema is those first words. Hear. But here, the focus on hearing, that's an interesting sentence, is that God Shema's. That God hears. What is so interesting in this passage, we never hear of her crying out. And yet God heard. Even before she cried out, God heard. Ishmael. I, Shema, El, God. God hears me. The second thing that he reveals, he reveals that he has a purpose for your life. God wants to use you. And the the more you walk in faithfulness, the more we walk in obedience, the more we walk in reflecting who we are in the promise of God. The, The choruses that we sang this morning, John, they were so great in expressing that, you know, who I am, who I am, who am I? I'm the one that's loved by God. I'm the one that is, is, is found by God. I'm the one that God loves. I am the one that God has chosen to relate to throughout all of eternity and was willing to God in Christ come and reconcile his relationship with me. And he's got a plan. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we are saved by faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we need to go on to verse 10. And we are God's workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God's got a purpose for you. 
He says to, he says to Hagar here, I've got a purpose. You're going to have a child. And by the way, you may not know this yet. You know, you're going to have a child. He's going to be a son and he's going to become a great nation. And all this is going to happen. Hagar, you may feel worthless and useless. You may feel like an object, like nobody cares. But I hear, and I have a purpose for your life. He reveals that he sees. There's this incredible interaction that takes place here. It goes on to say that in verse 13, she gave him, she gave, I'm I'm sorry, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. El Roy. The God who sees. And literally, she says after that, I see the God that sees me. God sees. God is aware. Do you ever try to explain God being omnipresent to a child? God is everywhere. The easiest way to say it is this. Everything is in God's presence. He sees it all. He knows me. He knows me better than I know myself. God sees. He understands. Are you struggling? He understands. Are you afraid? He sees. He understands. Are you grieving? He sees. He understands. And revealing that she understands it, she does something again that's found nowhere else in all of Scripture. She is the only human that gives to God a name. What an incredible honor for a woman who in the verse, first six verses wasn't even named. It was just an object. God says, you can name me. The message of Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, is simply this. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what a spouse says. I don't care what a friend says. I don't care what a parent says. I don't care if they have failed to communicate to you the value and the purpose and the meaning of your life. We have a God that understands it. We have a God who has created you. We have a God that values you. We have a God that hears you. We have a God that sees you. And if you are his child because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a covenant, an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And everything your heart longs for, everything your soul needs, that's the immaterial part of who I am, is found in that relationship. And only that relationship. But God doesn't end there. He responds and he basically says this, God calls forth a trusting response for us to fully enjoy his promises. I don't know if any of you have ever repelled 
you know, where you use a rope and bounce down the side of a cliff? I have. It's an amazing experience. But there's something required to enjoy the experience. You got to trust the rope. And you know how you show you trust the rope? By jumping. When you do, if you've ever done it, back in my stealthy days, standing at the top of the cliff, about 100 feet down to the bottom, with a rope around my waist and set on a, a, a caliper on the top, and then to just back off and jump. Suddenly, you feel weightless. You feel free. I remember stepping off that cliff and just bouncing all over that thing, just having a thrilling time. How? Why? Because I chose to take the step that demonstrated I trusted the rope. God comes to us and says, yes, I want you to enjoy you to enjoy the fullness of who I am. But in order to do that, there's something you need to do. Trust me and take the step. Now, I don't know what step God may be calling you to do. It's different for every one of us in the individual struggles that we have, but there is a next step that demonstrates our trust and our dependence and our faith in him. It may be a small step. It may be a massive one. But God says in taking that step of trusting, we enjoy fully his promises. Now he comes to the woman and he begins to interact with her. And as you read down through there, the very first thing he says is, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? And she says, I'm running away. Verse 9, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I want you to do what's right. Not what's easy. Not what's comfortable. Not what will necessarily make you happy. I want you to do what's right. Go back to Sarah. Go back to Abram, who's the father of the child, and submit. The trusting response, the first one, is we enjoy the fullness of God's promises when we choose to obey his clear directions. If I really believe that God knows me, and I really believe that God sees me, and I really believe that God hears me, and I really believe that God has what is best for me in his purposes. And I believe that he has created me and designed me and created this life that I have. That I understand he's the one that wrote the owner's manual. And he's telling me the best way to live. He's telling me the best way to respond. He's telling me in that tough situation when it would seem so much easier to lie, instead speak the truth. He's telling us that in that situation where it would be so easy to give up the standards, to stand on standards, 
and character. To believe that God will be faithful and that it's the best way to live. But the second thing is the most important. If you hear nothing today, hear the next one. Because I believe that it is the central, one of the central truths of a mature believing walk. I think if you grab a hold of this one, it makes a lot of the other choices we make a lot easier. And here's the truth. That we enjoy the fullness of God's promises when we, develop, when we desire fellowship or our relationship with him more than the alleviation of our struggle. God, if keeping this situation in my life causes me to be more dependent upon you, to be closer to you, to be more trusting of you, then it's more important to me that I have that depth of relationship than that I feel comfortable. This week, as I was preparing this, the song that we all, if you've grown up in the church, you know the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spadafort wrote it. You may know the story behind it, that Horatio Spadafort's four children were killed in a sinking of a ship back in the mid-1800s. I had never heard the whole story. And as you're listening to this story in just a few moments, remember these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, God with you, it's well with my soul. Horatio Spafford was a well-known lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1860s, where he lived with his wife Anna and their five children. He had invested heavily in real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan. He was a prosperous man and devout Christian. However, in 1870, a series of events began to turn Horatio's world upside down. That year, Horatio and Anna's only son died of scarlet fever at the tender age of only four. A year later, while the Spaffords were still grieving the loss of their son, the great Chicago fire broke out and destroyed nearly every one of Horatio's investments. His entire life savings was gone. Aware of the toll these disasters had taken on his family, Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England, where they planned to accompany the famous evangelist D.L. Moody on his next crusade. However, just before they set sail, a last-minute business development forced Horatio to delay. Not wanting to ruin the family holiday, he persuaded his family to go on as planned, and he would follow along later. 
With this decided, Horatio stayed in Chicago while Anna and the girls boarded the French steamship Ville du Havre to set sail for England. But several days later, Horatio received devastating news. The Ville du Havre had been struck by an iron sailing vessel from England. The ship sank in only 12 minutes, claiming the lives of 226 passengers. It was the worst disaster in naval history until the sinking of the HMS Titanic 40 years later. received a telegraph from Anna from Wales. It read these six words. Survived alone. What should I do? The Spafford's four daughters were among those who perished. After hearing the terrible news, Horatio boarded the next ship out of New York to join his bereaved wife. During his voyage, the captain of the ship called him to the bridge. A careful reckoning has been made, he said, and I believe we are now passing the very place where the Ville du Havre sank. And it was there, while staring into the watery grave of his beloved daughters, that Horatio penned the words to the great hymn, It is well with my soul. If you had been on that spot, if the captain had come to you, what could you have written? I don't know that I could have penned those words. I would hope that I could. I would hope that I would understand that no matter what I lose in this world or whatever struggle I face, my relationship with God and my intimacy with Him is that which satisfies my soul and that it is well. Paul said it this way, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away from me the thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, what I hold up for a claim in my life, what is of most value, what I want everybody to know, that's the idea of boast. I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power might rest in me. And the idea of power, there's also God's spirit, his presence. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong in him. But the theme that declares it the most is when Paul, at the high point of the book of Philippians, as he's described 
the attitude that Christ had. And he's described those who are faithful. And he, and he speaks about Epaphrodites. And he speaks about Mark. And he speaks about the struggle that they've been through. And how he could boast in all the things that he has if he wanted to. He says, you know what? What's most important in my life is this. I want to know Christ. The more you understand that, the greater your faith will grow. And the more you will enjoy your intimacy, our covenant, our relationship, the joy that God gives. Two more really quickly. The next thing that this passage demonstrates is this, that A trusting response is when we enjoy the fullness of God's promises, when we choose to believe that God is good and intimately involved with us. God comes to Hagar and says to Hagar, you're going to have a son. Your son's going to be this great nation. He's going, his name is going to be Ishmael. And, And this wonderful, incredible promise is given. But notice what she rejoices in. She doesn't rejoice in the prophecy or the promise. She rejoices in the fact that she has this intimacy with God. And that God is good. And that going back to Abram and going back to Sarai and going back in the midst of the struggle is still good. Why? Because a good God sees me and is working out his purpose in my life. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And then finally this. We enjoy the fullness of God's promises when we are certain that he can redeem our failures. Every person here has failed in their walk of faith. Every person here has in some way fallen short. If you can't see it, come talk to me. We'll spend about an hour together. But God says this. Hagar, you may be running home. You may be an escaped servant. You may think that you are in overwhelming trouble. But I can redeem And I can put things right. We believe that. When you read this story, you read the story of a God who cares about his children, who hears, who sees, who seeks, who purposes, who reveals. And God says, respond in a way that lives out that reality and know the joy, know the peace that comes from understanding that all that I need for the hunger and thirst of my soul is in my intimacy with him. Father, teach us the truth. Help us to walk in a way that demonstrates that reality.
Father, if there's someone here that's not certain of having a relationship with you, as we do each morning, we invite them to come and speak to me or someone about how they can know that. Father, those of us who know of that relationship, know that we are your children. Help us to walk in a way that, yes, demonstrates you, that brings you glory and honor, that builds your kingdom. But, Father, also to walk in a way that allows us to enjoy the fullness of our covenant and our relationship with you, the satisfaction of our soul. And we pray it in the name of your Son. Amen.